You're listening to audio from Gospel Collective Church. If you'd like to check out additional resources or learn more about us, please visit gcclex.com. It's always good to be with you. Um, if I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is Connor Woods. I am our next-gen associate uh, and our media director here at GCC. Um, if you have a Bible, uh, you're going to need that. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, if you are new, this is your first uh, Sunday with us. Uh, welcome. We are so glad that you are here. Uh, you are joining us in a journey through this book, which is Hebrews. And before kind of catch you up to speed on, on what we've uh, been learning about and, and seeing and hearing God um, say to us, uh, I, I want to ask all of us, particular, particularly those who are followers of Jesus, um, that this morning... Uh, we would do and kind of tune in to what God is saying. Because I think a lot of times, uh, many books, I think this one, uh, more so than a lot of the, the, New, T- the New Testament books, um, it can be really easy to, to read this as an encyclopedia of God. Almost like some information about who God is. And, and while there is certainly information here, it is not merely information um, but we are here to hear what God has to say to us. That this is His Word. That's why we call it God's Word. He is speaking to us through these words, through this text, um, in this time. And so I want us to set really high expectations this morning that God would, dare I say, transform us through the reading of His Word to you and to me. That applies to all of us. I think some of us as, as Christians, we can kind of get a little crusty and just kind of read it and study it uh, and get hung up on the, the tabernacle and the priests and things like that. Um, but let's just let's remind ourselves, this is God's word and he is speaking to us this morning. And so um, I, I want to pray before, before, we, before we dive in. Uh, so will you join me in prayer? Lord Jesus, we... We pray that your spirit would help us see the, the, the truth here in, in this passage. We admit that we, we cannot understand you apart from your help. And so we ask you to help us. We ask you to speak to us this morning um, in, in different ways. And, and we, all, we all need to, to hear something this morning. And so we ask that you do so. Pray you'd help us. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's, let's go broad scope. So what have we been talking about um, in Hebrews over the past several weeks? I can't reach back all the way to chapter 1. That'll take some time. Um, but what we have seen is that uh, 11 previous times, and now this will be the 12th time, uh, the author of Hebrews is going to open up by saying, hey, all of the law, all of the things of the past are a shadow of something that is to come. It's a shadow of, um, the NASB says it's a hint towards something. And so uh, to, get a, to get an understanding about, about what that means, I have a, a, a picture here um, of uh, my wife. Uh, this is on our wedding day. Listen, you got the youth guy this morning, so of course he's going to talk about his wife. So just bear with me. Uh, so this is, this is my wife. This is a picture of my wife. I love this picture. Uh, I can like remember this day so vividly by looking at it. Um, she is just beautiful and radiant. I love this photo. However, this is just a shadow of who she really is, right? Like the printed version of this photo, or even the digital version, doesn't sound like her. Uh, if, if I was to print it, it like, doesn't give me a hug. It doesn't comfort me in the same way. Um, that is still my wife, uh, but it is pointing to who she really is. There's something more than what I can see in this photo and what you can see in this photo. That is not my wife. My wife is actually here. She's in the back. But, uh, so that's kind of what the author is saying. Hey, the law, all of these old systems, all of these sacrifices, it is a shadow, a picture. It is hinting towards the real thing, something that is greater. Last week we talked about Jesus' blood. There's a lot of blood language. I know we don't like to talk about blood. Um, particularly me, I, I do not um, like blood. 
Um, and so we, we, we saw that um, the priest would sacrifice these animals. God had set up this system where they would sacrifice these animals. And the blood uh, symbolically would, would cover their sin. So the things that they had done wrong, um, the evil that was within their hearts, um, God would, would request, hey, you need to sacrifice these animals and their blood will atone for or pay for your sin. But we saw last week that the blood of Jesus is completely different. It means infinitely more. It holds infinitely more power than the blood of a bull or a goat. And so this morning, we're going to look at the first half of chapter 10. And uh, I, I'm, I'm, I like to keep things simple. I really, there's really just one main thing here. And it's that imperfect sinners need a perfect sacrifice. Imperfect sinners need a perfect sacrifice. And if, if you're wondering, well, who are those imperfect sinners? Uh, they're uh, occupying this room right now. So congratulations, welcome. Uh, but they're not just here. Imperfect sinners are not just inside this room, uh, or maybe you're the opposite. You think they're outside of this room. They're all of us. Humanity is full of, completely, imperfect sinners, and we need a perfect sacrifice. I think this is particularly difficult for those of us who are uh, like serial rule followers, uh, that includes myself. Is anybody a, like a rule follower? Like you just, you love following the rules. See, you're raising your hand. I know some of you are doing that, not because you want to, but because that's, those were the rules and you followed them. So uh, thank you for, for playing along. Um, so some of us are rule followers to a T. And, and what I think the, the, the author is going to stress here is that even for those of us who are rule followers, or, or maybe, you're, maybe, maybe you think your life is a mess, it's a train wreck, that for both of us, we are so much like the ancient Hebrews and caught up in this, this system of sacrifices. It just looks different for us today. And so let's, let's start in, in, in verse 1 of chapter 10. It says, For since the law has but a, there's that word, shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw Near, So that first part, for since the law, again, this is referring to um, not just the, the Ten Commandments, those laws, <clears throat> but also the, the tabernacle and the priests and the sacrifices, it's all of that. So this is the law. And what the author is saying here is definitive. It's not up for debate. He says, hey, the, the law has but a shadow of the things to come. So uh, we can assume that because the law is no longer in effect that it is bad. And the law is not bad. I don't think that's the right word for it. It's just incomplete. Because the law did serve a, a function and it did serve a purpose. It's, it's just incomplete. It's lacking. It's inferior to the good things that are to come. I don't know if you've realized this, but we're really bad at keeping just the Ten Commandments. Like, you may make up, like, some rules of, like, morality, um, like, and add those to the Ten Commandments, but, like, we struggle to even follow, like, ten simple steps. Uh, and the Israelites uh, were equally as bad. And so, um, the law is inferior, not because it's bad, but because we're bad at keeping it. It's not because the law is bad. We are bad law keepers. And the law... But the author is going to argue here, even that the law is good and it's given from God, the law is not going to save you. Your ability to follow the law, even if you could follow it perfectly, is not going to save you. And God is neither impressed by it or going to grant you salvation because you can follow the law. So the law and the rituals and the sacrifices, they were a shadow of the things to come. I said the NASB uh, translation of the Bible says it's a hint towards. I think that's a, a really good uh, way of thinking about it. So it's hinting towards Jesus. It's hinting towards his life, his death, his resurrection. Now this is a comparison and a contrast we're going to see fleshed out um, through the remaining verses. So the law is a shadow. It's a copy. It's good but severely inferior because it's not the, what the author's going to say, is the true form of these realities. So the law is not uh, complete when compared to 
Jesus, the true and perfect human, the perfect form. Um, when he says these realities, he's um, kind of pulling back to everything he's already explained over the, over the past few chapters and then reaching forward to how he's going to uh, kind of describe what our faith looks like in light of everything he's talked about with the priesthood and how Jesus is better than all of it. So he's kind of reaching it in two directions. Um, so because the law is a shadow of Jesus, who is the best thing, who is the truest form of humanity, that's why he says it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So like I said, even if you could draw near, and, and we took a poll when, when Matt Noble preached a couple weeks ago, of like, uh, or a theoretical poll, if we could, if we could say, uh, raise your hand if you're Jewish in here. 99.99% of us probably aren't raising our hands, and 100 is probably a very safe bet. Like, we are not, um, cla- like we are not able, not only because we're not Jewish, but we're not priests. We're not Jewish priests. And so, like, we cannot enter and make the sacrifice at the tabernacle. And what the author is saying, hey, even if you could, even if you were a priest, it's not going to save you. It's not going to change you in and of itself. So, um, spiritually speaking, or morality speaking, think about like your best day. And we've all got rough ones. Maybe you're going through, like maybe uh, you're struggling right now. Um, so kind of dream with me. Think about like, okay, if you could be like perfect, uh, then what would that look like? So uh, like, man, your, your Bible reading plan. You're crushing it. Every day, 6 a.m., you're up, you're reading it. Uh, your prayer life is just stellar. Your church attendance, you're here at the 9.15 and the 11 a.m. service. Community groups, you're there every week. You're early, and you're leaving late. So what does that, like, add it all up, what does it get you? Subpar. Less than perfection. And so what do we do? What, what, what is some of our tendencies? I think rule followers, this is you, but I also think we're influenced by the culture around us. We think we can plan our way to perfection, right? If I get these systems and structures in place, if I drop these habits and add some new habits, if I um, start reading more books, it's like, I don't know, if you're struggling through the book of Leviticus, maybe like work your way through that in your Bible reading plan before adding a bunch of books to it. But um, like we try and work our way, we try and plan our way to perfection. And what the author is going to say here is that outside of Jesus, and if Jesus is not the focal point, if he's not the whole purpose, there is no perfection. Like you are incapable of being perfect apart from Jesus. And don't get me wrong, all those things are good, Habits, good habits, uh, Bible reading plans, prayer life. Like that's all, those are all good things, but we deceive ourselves into thinking, well, if I just get the right system in place, then I'll be perfect. So all of our efforts are in vain if Jesus is not the point and if he's not, through his spirit, the one doing all of the work. And so um, let's pick up in, in, in verse 2. It says, Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. I love this rhetorical question uh, that the author brings up. He's saying, um, hey, if those sacrifices were perfect, why are you still doing them? Right? Like, if the sacrifices... Uh, were perfect if they compared at all to Jesus. Why are you continually going back? Why does it not seem to work? Why doesn't it stick? He's kind of poking this, uh, this, the bear here. And he's pointing out like, hey, there is going to be a permanent sacrifice. So he's kind of stirring the pot. He's saying, hey, what if there was something that lasted longer than just between sacrifice to sacrifice. And he's pointing to the permanent and solitary sacrifice of Jesus. A sacrifice that is not continual. That doesn't repeat itself. And it's a sacrifice that doesn't put the burden on us as believers. We'll talk about more of that in a sec. But look at verse 3 again. It says, But in these sacrifices there was a reminder of sins every year. I think the word choice here is super interesting. 
you'll see um, the author's going to make a bunch of these comparisons, these contrasts. He's going to take a bunch of turns, a lot of back and forth. And so you would think, as he's talking about the inferiority of the sacrifices, right? The old system, it doesn't work, it's broken. And then he brings up the, re- the reminder of sins. You would think he would talk about those things in the same breath, right? Like, hey, these things were inferior. But that's, it's not, and in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. It's, but in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins each year. Meaning that the sacrifices, although the sacrifices were inferior, there's something intrinsically valuable about being reminded of our sin. It's good to be reminded of our sin. Not to carry the, the weight of, of shame or guilt. Because if you read the scriptures, that's, that's not uh, the point of being reminded of sin. It's to be, it's to be restored back to God. And to walk in the Spirit. So it's, it's not that we need to feel guilty or, or to feel ashamed. But it's because the Christian life is a constant cycle of confession and repentance. It's a constant cycle of confession and repentance. And we cannot confess what we do not recognize. What we do not see is there. We cannot confess it. James 5.16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So there is a type of healing, maybe exclusively, to be healed from sin is to confess it to one another. And it's not one another, just me and God. It's one another, me in biblical community. This is one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to, hey, hey you are in sin right now. That, that, that feeling, like we've all got a conscience and, and the Holy Spirit's a little different than the conscience and that it's going to point you to the truth about God and, and God's love for you and His grace towards you in your sin. But it's to remind us and to convict us, hey, you're in sin right now or what you have done is sinful. Like The, the ghost can just grab you anywhere and, and anytime he wants to. And, and I think sometimes we may be like, ooh, I don't, I don't know if I really want him to do that. I don't know. Like the thought of my sin before a, a holy and perfect God is, is a little daunting. It's a little scary. But let us rejoice knowing that, that God is not only eager to forgive us of our sin. He's not holding out on you to perform some religious duty to go get a sacrifice to then forgive you of your sin. That's not what he's doing. Jesus himself, the Son of God, second person of the Trinity, has gone ahead of us as the perfect sacrifice so that the Spirit of God can indwell us and remind us, point us to the true form which we are to imitate. This is accomplished both in our personal conviction of sin, that's the work of the Holy Spirit, but also through communion. We see this very similarly in when we take the Lord's Supper. It's a good and right thing to be reminded of the sacrificial death of Jesus. So while the sacrifices of old are inferior, the remembrance of sins was intrinsically good. It was a good thing. It was a great part of the law and the old system was to be reminded of sin. Uh, However, verse 4, he's going to show us that there's a critical flaw. Uh, If you haven't caught on to it yet, there's a critical flaw in these old sacrifices. So verse 4, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So here again, that blood language, he just he can't get away from talking about the blood. But the blood of bulls and goats is categorically different than the blood of Jesus. Not simply because Jesus poured forth human blood for human sin, but that it was perfect human blood. Because he was a perfect man. He was able to keep the law perfectly. Like I said, like the sacrifices only covered past sins. So last year's sacrifice, that ain't cutting it for this year's sin. And I'm sure there are people that went to the tabernacle, had a sacrifice, uh, had their sins forgiven, and then like on the walk home, we're like, oh, I got another one. Like I, I got mad at my neighbor. A perfect and permanent sacrifice was needed. 
And that's where the author is going to explicitly point to Jesus. We haven't caught on yet. Jesus is that perfect sacrifice. So look at verse 5 with me. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have broken for me. In burnt offerings and in sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Now, I don't know if you're like me. If I see a, a cross-reference or a quotation um, in, in, in the scriptures, I love to go like trace it down. I love to go see, okay, where is the author pulling from? And if you do that, uh, you'll realize very quickly it lands you in Psalms. There's two Psalms in particular. And you might have some questions. Jesus didn't write the Psalms. You'll see that they're written by David. And so you say, okay, this must be a misquotation, right? Certainly it's a flaw of the Bible, uh, and this should not be in here, and it's wrong. Um, but it's not wrong. Uh, be, be, because it's a Davidic Psalm, because it was written by King David, the point of the Psalm is to point to the Messiah who would come through the lineage of David. So David is saying these words, and then what the author of Hebrews is going to do is he's going to take David's words and overlay them onto the life of Christ that you and I might see Jesus fulfilled everything that was just said all the way back in the Psalms, all the way back to the time of King David. So it's not a misquotation, it's not wrong. And if you read the language in light of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, it starts to make a lot of sense. But look at this. He says, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. And you may say, Connor, hold on. I thought God established this old system, right? It was, it was all God's idea. And you're right. But God's ultimate desire was not that bulls and goats would be killed and that people would be bringing these sacrifices. That sounds a lot like some ancient Near Eastern gods, or even gods of the present age, that's not what the God of the Bible is doing. It's not what Yahweh is doing. God is not impatiently waiting with his arms crossed for you to bring him some bulls and some goats. Like these bulls, these goats, they cannot bear the weight of human depravity. And so we see that a body you have prepared for me. Like it's not talking about David. It's clearly talking about Jesus. Jesus is saying, this body that you, God the Father, have prepared for me will be broken on behalf of mankind. This was God's will, as he says in verse 7, to have Christ's body prepared as the perfect sacrifice. And before, that, before you assume that sounds like divine child abuse, let me remind you that Jesus willingly went to the cross. He was not compelled to, he was not forced to, he willingly and lovingly obeyed his father and did it. And look at verses 8 through 9. This is going to sound a little familiar. When he said above you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. Now, whenever you see something repeated in Scripture, that is to clue you in, the author is really trying to drive a point home. That God, speaking through the author of Hebrews, is trying to tell you something super important. You'll hear preachers all the time, if they want to drive a point home, they'll say it at least twice. Like, God is trying to get this point across. That Jesus came to do the will of God the Father and that God ultimately did not desire, he did not want his people to bring him sacrifices. And that actually the whole plan all along was Jesus. The sacrificial system was supposed to end at Jesus. Like, we did not fling ourselves into depravity, into sin, into all sorts of evil, and then all of a sudden God is scrambling to figure out, right? He's not at the whiteboard like, all right, Jesus, and then you're going to go down and, and sacrifice yourself. No. This was the plan all along. The law was intended to be a shadow because it was supposed to show us that it could never save us on our own. 
On, on its own, the law cannot save us. And we needed a perfect sacrifice, which was Jesus, to do that. And so when he does away with this old system, he's not invalidating it in times past. But what he's doing is he's establishing a second one. So the first system, again, is a shadow of the first. It was temporarily functional, but still insufficient. And it ultimately points to what we see in verse 10. It says, and by that... So that is the new system. So by that, by this new system that Jesus has instituted, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So Jesus' perfect, spotless life is what made his death acceptable and what made his death final. Where the blood of bulls and goats covered sin temporarily, Christ's body bruised from beatings, broken from bearing the cross, and blood that was poured forth as he was pierced in his side, not just covers your sin, but it covers you. It covers sins and sinners. And you'll see this, this word sanctified or sanctification. It's a, it's a big word. It, simply put, sanctification means the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, making us look more like Jesus. We've been, we've been granted direct access to God through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. And again, here's where we get so tripped up. We think we're totally different than the Hebrews here because we don't do these sacrifices, because this is a culture where we're just so unfamiliar with. See, the Hebrews, they, they got into this cycle of religious activity that was void of any sort of heart change. Does that sound familiar? It was, what do I do, not who do I worship? Just tell me what to do, right? Just like, give me the checklist. Tell me what I need to do to earn God's love or to uh, keep God's love or to make up for things that I've done. It was sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. And time and time again, you're going to see in the Old Testament and here in Hebrews, God says, I don't want any of that. I don't, I don't want your stuff. That's what's being said in verses 5 through 9. He doesn't want bulls and goats. He doesn't need them. He created them. What need does he have for them? Like, he wants you. He wants you. And this is why this passage is so difficult for us to understand because, again, we're so removed from this. Like, we probably, it's hard to imagine what it would be like to be in sin and to take a physical animal to a tabernacle and have it slaughtered. Like, that's so foreign to us. And so the temptation is like, well, we just, we don't do that, right? Like, we don't, we're not bringing sacrifices to God, but you absolutely are bringing sacrifices to God. It just looks very different than it did here. You're constantly bringing your you know, petty religious activity to the, the throne, the altar of God, and laying it down and say, okay, God, I'm sorry that I, I did X, Y, or Z, or I just want to make sure that I'm keeping your love, so here's what I'm bringing. I'm bringing my church attendance or my morality or my uh, Bible reading. Like, God... You think, like, God wants your church attendance? Like, how small do we think that God is that he's just here to be served? That he needs us to, to serve him? That his love is, is made or breaks on how well you keep a checklist? But this is the mindset that we fall into. And what God is saying is, like, I don't, I don't want that. I don't, I don't want your stuff. I don't want your petty religious activity. I want you. He's saying just drop the act, drop all of this religious nonsense and just give me your heart. Just give me your heart. I want you. And so the author's crystal clear here and in also in verse 14, there is more than just behavior modification going on. Like listen, like, listen friend. I can't say it more simply than God wants more than just your obedience. He wants more than just your obedience. And in fact, I would say he cares more about your heart than he does about your obedience. He wants your heart. 
He doesn't want your stuff. He doesn't want your ability to keep a checklist. Because at the end of the day, it's imperfect. And everything that you could possibly bring to God, he gave you in the first place. He wants you. This is why the whole first system didn't work. The priests had gotten to a point where they could make all these sacrifices and do all these rituals, and that just didn't mean anything. He wants you. God wants you. He doesn't need your obedience. Our God is not mighty if he merely exists to be obeyed. He wants you. He wants you. He wants you. He doesn't want your stuff. He doesn't want or need your stuff. It's all his anyways. He wants you. And when we try to add anything to the cross of Christ and his sacrificial death, we have ventured far away from biblical Christianity. And we have ventured into something that is just another works-based religion where you and I are tirelessly spinning our wheels and doing religious stuff that God may love us. And this is why the gospel and the God of the Bible are so beautifully and radically different than any other God or any other faith is that the the script has been flipped. We are not working our way up the mountain to God. God has made his way down the mountain to us. So not only is the sacrifice of Jesus perfect in and of itself, it is also complete for all time. Look at verses 11 and 12. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins, Thank you, author of Hebrews, for reiterating that point. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. So Matt Noble, a couple weeks ago, shared a diagram of kind of what the tabernacle looked like. And there are all these things in it, and it was just beautifully laid out. There's some steps you had to follow, very strict steps. There's this architecture But you know what was not in the design plans of the tabernacle? Chairs. There wasn't a single chair in that tabernacle. Why? Like, think, like, like at the most basic level, think about why there were no chairs. Because if a priest were to sit down, that would signify there's no more work to be done. But that's not what's being said here. It says the priest stands daily. And I read that and I'm like, I stand up here for, you know, 45 minutes or an hour and a half between two services and I'm exhausted. But like the priest making sacrifices, shedding the blood of bulls and goats on this, on this altar and then cleaning it up and doing that again and cleaning it up and doing it, like that is exhausting. And th- that's not what we see Jesus do. So why does Jesus sit down? Why is it important that he is sitting? Because the work is done. There is no sacrifice that needs to be made anymore. It is done. It is complete. Jesus has finished the work. He has taken a seat at the right hand of his Father in heaven. And I know someone needs to hear that emphasized again. Like Jesus has sat down. He sat down. He's not waiting for you to get your act together or to do enough things and to bring your sacrifices to work a little harder that you may be saved. And he's not constantly interrupted by your sin where he has to get up off the throne, come back down to earth, and make another sacrifice so that your sin will be forgiven. That's not what's... He sat down. He's done. It's it's finished. Let me ask you this. How many of your sins were future sins when Jesus died on the cross? All of them, thank you. All of them. Every single one of your sins was a future sin when Jesus died on the cross. That's mind-blowing, right? Like, I think we, we can assume like Jesus is somehow surprised by our new sin. And he's not. Jesus knew what he was buying on the cross. He knew what he was doing. He knew what he was doing. The saving work is done. Hallelujah. And the burden of being reconciled back to God has not been placed on your shoulders. 
but it has been completed by the work of Jesus. So then after he sat down, what does Jesus do? Verse 13 tells us, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. So Jesus is waiting for a time where the Father says, it's finished, this, this sin problem, it's going to be done. And so Jesus is waiting for justice. He's waiting for the green light where justice will be made perfect. Where all of those who are his enemies are his footstool. That means you're subject, you're under Christ's authority. But it's not a, it's, if you're an enemy of God, like that's not good news. Like Jesus is a good king. We've talked about that in, in weeks past. Like he's a good king. He's a good ruler. But it's only good if you're, if you're his friend. Like it, it's only good if you're part of his family. It is not a good thing to be under the rule and reign of Jesus if you are a sinner in your sin. If you're an enemy of God, and if you're like, well, that sounds kind of harsh. I don't know if I'm an enemy. Like the Bible's going to say, hey, your default is that you're an enemy of God. By default, day one, you're an enemy. My sister uh, Jessica gave birth to her first child ever. And you know what? On Wednesday at around 2.30, that Harrison, he's an enemy of God. He's like four days old. He's an enemy of God. He is. And you are too. If you are in your sin, if you have not surrendered to God, confess before Him, you are a sinner, you're in need of that sacrifice. Hey, I need, I need Jesus' sacrifice to be forgiven of your sin. Like, you are that enemy. And there's coming a day where you will be face-to-face with God, where you will either enter eternal punishment because of your sin, because you remained an enemy of God. You will enter into eternal punishment, which is hell, or you will enter into eternal life for him forever because you're his child, you're his daughter, you are his son. So do not delay this. If this describes it, like if you are an enemy, if you have not surrendered to the rule and reign of Jesus right now, do not delay Like, look at what we've already seen. This is a glorious thing that God did not desire for us to keep making sacrifices, to be bound by laws, but that we would know Him and love Him because of the free gift of grace, which was Jesus' death on the cross. 2 Peter 3.9 drives this point home. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I don't know what your picture of God is in your mind, but it's not. He's just waiting for you to mess up and He's going to strike you down. That's not who God is. Do not remain an enemy of God today, but lay your life down before Him and say, forgive me of my sin and draw me to yourself. And for those of us who are anxious about the state of the world, there's some comfort in here for us too. I think the temptation for all of us is to, to grasp onto things that are tangible or things that we can see, right? So um, maybe we're discombobulated with how things are going in culture or society or the world, and so we want to latch on to, okay, politics is the answer, or money is the answer, or I just got to stick to my family, or I need to get more power. Um, and so we need to remind ourselves that if Jesus is sitting down Not only is the work done, but he is not worried about the state of the world. He is not worried about how things are going to play out. And neither should we be. And so I want to ask you this morning, like, are are you anxious about what's going on? Look to the one who's in control. He is seated. He is, he's still, like, he is secure. And rest in the fact that Christ is in control. So now we get to the end, uh, some of these ending verses. Verse 14, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now there's some really interesting wordplay here. I don't know if you caught it. Jesus has perfected, it's past tense, those who are being sanctified, present tense. And remember, sanctification is the work of the Holy Spirit making us look more like Jesus. 
So how can you make something look more like Jesus that's already perfect? I don't know how many of you guys are like you're, you're English people, right? You under, like you think about wordplay and you kind of understand like what's, what's being said here, but how can we make a perfect thing more perfect? Well, I think we need to zoom out. We need to see that there's actually kind of three stages or three levels of perfection. And so here's what I want you to see. There's, there's three things, and they're on the screen. So um, we have been perfected with our salvation. We are being perfected. That's our sanctification. And we will be perfected. That's our glorification. So when you surrender to God, place your faith in Him, you've been transferred out of this status of, I'm a sinner, I'm an enemy of God, to being a beloved child in His family. By no work of your own, you have gone from enemy of God to child of God. The, the Bible uses this adoption language, and I think it's so rich and it's so beautiful and appropriate. Like we've been adopted by God. Like in a moment, your whole life can be changed. You can go from enemy to child. But not only has your status changed, it's changed for all time. So that your salvation was not earned by you, cannot be destroyed by you. And because it wasn't earned by you, it can't be taken by you or by someone else. If your salvation is a gift of God, then someone has got to be mightier and stronger than God to take away your salvation. This is the perfection that's being talked about here. Like we cannot out the grace of God. Are there going to be moments in your life when you fail? Absolutely. You're going to blow it at some point in time. Are you going to feel uncertain about your salvation? Of course. We also have an enemy who's just constantly trying to lie to us about who we really are. That we really aren't saved or that we really aren't secure in our relationship with God. I don't know about you. I, I've felt that. Like dark night of the soul. Like it is, it's, it, it's extremely hard and disorienting. And so this is why we do life in community. Because the bride of Christ, which is the church, needs to be reminded of who she is. My, my wife and I uh, get the privilege of photographing and filming uh, weddings. And uh, we were at a wedding yesterday uh, for, some, for some dear friends uh, working. It's just a fun time. We get the whole gamut of the wedding day. And, uh, you know, good and bad. But we get the whole gamut. Uh, and so uh, one thing that I have noticed about weddings... And I was thinking about this yesterday uh, as a lot of these, the people in the bridal party are my friends. And um, I was thinking that, that the bridal party, the wedding party, groomsmen, bridesmaids, like they set the tone for the wedding day. Like you get a good, you get a good wedding party, it's a good time. Right? It, it, is, it is a true party. Like it's not the bride that sets the tone, it's not the groom that sets the tone. It's not the mother of the bride, although that can play a role in how things, you know, it can be tricky. But, and so I was thinking, well, why is this the case? Well, what does a wedding party do? They're there to celebrate. They're there to encourage. They're there to lift up, to validate the couple's love for one another. Like, the, the bride even on her wedding day, needs to be reminded of how beautiful she is and how much she is loved, not by just her friends, but by the groom, her husband-to-be. And so the same is true for us. We as the church need to constantly be reminded of who we are. So if you're in Christ, you need to be reminded of, of who you are, a son, a daughter of God for all time. Someone who has experienced the perfect and forever sacrifice of Jesus. You have been, past tense, perfected. And presently, we see this idea of sanctification in verses 15 and 16. It says, And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after, saying, This is the covenant I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. So after surrendering your life to God, placing your faith in Jesus, setting out to follow him to the best of your ability, we are not alone. We are not alone. Like the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, comes to live in us, make his home in us. It's not 
Casper the ghost, right? This is not, um, uh, we, talk, we sing songs about um, like the Holy Spirit filling the room, but like even better, it's like he fills, he fills us. Like he lives within us so that when we are outside of this room, we're not away from God. That we, it's not confined to this space that we experience God, but we can experience him anywhere with the Holy Spirit within us. So like right now, the Spirit is perfecting you and me if we are in Christ by putting God's laws not on a tablet that's going to be broken or a scroll that needs to be found somewhere in the Middle East. He is putting them, His words, directly onto our hearts, onto our minds. Like that's that beautiful. That's amazing. That like God's Word is not confined to a physical page or a tablet or a scroll, but like the Holy Spirit is imprinting them, sealing them onto us. You are being perfected. But then there's the third component. When your earthly life ends, you aren't just stuck with what you had. right? It's not just we relocate. Everything from your body to your mind to how you, like, how you think, will be transformed into something unimaginably beautiful. You will be made perfect. That's what we call glorification. So then, in eternity, we can celebrate God in just absolute purity and perfection. And the easiest thing to think of is like, okay, physically, like I won't be, I won't be in pain, I won't be sad. But it's talking about more than just your physical body, although it certainly is your physical body. But that when we are perfect, we will have nothing to hide. There will be nothing to fix. There will be nothing to be ashamed of when we stand before God. But the author knows that this day has not arrived yet. And so to comfort us, we read this in verses 17 and 18. It says, then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. These two verses draw us back into ultimate reality that we are constantly butting up against. It's reminding us that there is no offering, there is no action, no habit, no religious duty that can deal with the severity of our sin. And that's because of Jesus. Our sins are forgotten. That doesn't mean God is forgetful but that because we've been covered by the blood of Jesus, he no longer sees our sin, but he sees his son. The forever and perfect sacrifice. I want to share a, a brief testimony uh, of a woman here uh, at GCC who uh, shared, shared this with me and uh, how, how this idea about Jesus being the perfect sacrifice changed her life forever. She's now a daughter of God. She's been forgiven of her sin, and she's rejoicing in that. And so I want to share this testimony with you. It says, I was raised in a religious home, going to church every Sunday, and was familiarized with the images of Christ holding the lamb around his shoulders. None of the truth of the Old Testament had sunk in about the Jewish religion and the sacrifices of the blemish-free lambs or other animals for the atonement of sins. I couldn't understand why Jesus had to die, and so heinously at that. And then I thought about my sin. The weight was so heavy. I started studying the Bible and realized how perfect and sinless Jesus was. He was the prophecies fulfilled. He was the final and complete sacrifice for the sin in me and the whole world. He was the blemish-free lamb. I clearly remember sitting and hearing a woman at church I was attending explaining that because Jesus that because Jesus was sinless and the Son of God, no other sacrifice was ever needed again. It was because of this love, of His love for me, that He did it. And there was nothing I could do to earn that love. There was also nothing I could do to make Him not love me either. I was a 20-year-old single mom of a 1-year-old with a closet eating disorder and substance abuse issues who just wanted that love. A few weeks later, I chose Jesus to be the Lord and Savior of my life. Little did I know, He had already chosen me. 
while I was still that broken, lost girl. The images of the Stations of the Cross I saw as a child became personal images of truth, of my Jesus suffering and dying for me. The song's about, though the mountains may fall and the hills turn to dust, the love of the Lord will stand, that I heard in church as, when I was growing up. These became anthems of truth and power and grace. It has been many years since I first recognized God's loving kindness, but I will never forget that feeling of the weight of my sin vanishing as if I was a caterpillar who had just come out of my cocoon and realized I had wings to fly. There really is no better analogy to compare how I felt as a new creation in Christ. And 23 years later, I look back and see God's faithfulness, even when I chose my own way instead of His, because of pride, selfishness, fear, confusion, and doubt. But it's like the Crowder song says, if His grace is an ocean, we are all sinking. And that's why I don't give up, because He never gives up on me. God is perfect and cannot coexist with sin, so in order for me to have a relationship with Him, I had to be washed clean. Only the blood of Jesus can do that. If you have not experienced that, I just, I would implore you, do that today. Like step into new life today. It looks like Romans 10, 9 through 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Jesus, the perfect and final sacrifice of all time. So this morning, I just want to ask, why not just drop all of the religious junk that you're carrying to clutter up the altar of God? Just drop it. Stop trying to impress God. He just wants your heart. Surrender to His love today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, words aren't enough to express our gratitude for sending your son to be that perfect and forever sacrifice. You poured grace onto imperfect sinners who are totally undeserving. And even now, you have not abandoned us. You have not left us. You're still drawing people to yourself. And so if there is anyone here this morning that has not stepped into new life, who has not surrendered to Jesus, who has not experienced the love of God and the reality that they do not have to earn your salvation. There's nothing they can do to lose it. There's nothing that they can do to impress you or earn more love or, or have love taken away, God, that they would just re they would marvel and fall at their knees before you. I pray you do that this morning. As we sing and as we worship through song, I pray that our hearts would be true. That these, this wouldn't just be lip service to you, God, but we would be sincere in our devotion and in our words. We love you, Lord. We thank you. Let me praise you now. It's in the mighty name of Jesus we pray. Amen.